was so funny to hear people talking about the movie when they walked out because there were a lot of people who didn't understand this was a trilogy. And they had no background as far as what the story was about. And if you've seen that movie, it ends with nothing resolved. Matter of fact, it just created more problems than you had before you came in. And, and at the end of it, you got a couple hobbits wandering around the side of a mountain. And so people who didn't know were literally walking out of that movie going, well, that was stupid. <laughs> what a stupid ending. I mean, they just didn't know. And like some people were like, well, no, no, dude, there's more movies coming out. And some of them just didn't know. They were just kind of looking going, I, 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 I'll never watch that again. Of course, I've watched it 27 times. But anywho, uh, it was so funny because they didn't know there was a rest of the story. And without the rest of the story, the Fellowship of the Ring is not very good. But in its context, as a first part of a three-part deal, oh, okay, well then, yeah, it's pretty good. So many times we don't see the full story. So many times we don't know the big picture. So many times we who dwell in time question the God who dwells in eternity and say, this is not a good thing. This is not a right thing. What is wrong with you? Or maybe we ask what's wrong with me. But things are not what they are, and we don't see the full picture. Well, this morning, we're going to look at Ruth 1, and I promise you, if you only had Ruth 1, you'd say, I hate that book. That book is awful. That's terrible. It don't make any sense at all. A couple of hobbits wandering around into Bethlehem is what it ends up being. But, and they're not hobbits, they're ladies. But, um, but keep in mind that this is chapter 1 of 4. Okay? And keep in mind that as is so often the case, we're not going to see the full story today. Okay? If you would, if, how about say turn your Bibles to Ruth 1? I don't think I've said that in like two or three years, but if you got a Bible and you want to turn there, praise God for that. <clears throat> praise God for paper Bibles. Um, we're going to read Ruth chapter 1, and by the grace of God, we're going to cover Ruth chapter 1 today. Uh, so if you would please stand as we read this incredible first chapter of this incredible book. <clears throat> the very words of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malam and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited the people, had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of
house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your perfect word. Pray that you would convict us and restore our souls as a result of coming in contact with it. And God, if there be those here this morning, within the sound of my voice, who do not know you, we pray that you would use these words and the power of your Holy Spirit to awaken in them eternal. Come to know you, love you, and cling to you. to Naomi God, help us all, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Don't make the whole chapter of the Bible stand up. How about that? Get used to it because the next three So, what? You let the Bible determine how you preach. Okay, that's important. This is a narrative. This book was told as a story before it was written down as a story, okay? So we're not going phrase for phrase. We're not going word for word through this book. We're going scene by scene, basically. So we're not going to do one verse and talk about it, one verse and talk about it. We're going to do thought, big thought, probably two, three, sometimes six or eight verses, and then talk about it. And then we'll still have application points at the end. But you always let the type of literature determine how you preach and how you read and how you study and how you process. So this is a story, uh, a, a historical account, not a made-up story. Uh, we said last week that Ruth ends up in the lineage of Jesus, so she wasn't an imaginary person. She was a real person. And her name was Anna. Kid. No, wait a minute. That's <laughs> She's a real person, and so this historical account gives us just an incredible picture of the redemption that God reaches out and gives to not just Ruth, but to Naomi and then to all of us as we looked at last week. So first thing we're going to look at are just the first two verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, 
And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Um, I hid my map from myself. There it is. Okay. So if you'll remember, and as we begin this day, again, I know I put it up on Facebook, but if you haven't heard or seen last week's message, it's pretty important. Um, and we'll refer back to that message as if you have heard it, as if you have um, processed it, because there was some stuff uh, which we're going to move past in, in our going through the book, assuming that you know what was covered last week, like it's known. Uh, so if you haven't heard that, go back and listen to it, and then this week will make a little bit more sense. Hopefully this is a standalone message, but at the same time, it's part of the whole thought pattern, including last week. So there will be things that were covered in depth last week that we will mention in passing through the individual chapters. So like here, here's the map that we looked at last week, just to give you an idea of what happened here. So they're from Bethlehem. You see it there on the west side of the Dead Sea, and there's a famine. So they go into Moab, which is on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and they make their homes there. Um, and we, this also puts, it says that it was in the time of the judges, which puts us in a 300-year time frame of around 1350 B.C. to 1050 B.C. And we said last week this was probably in the earlier part of that 300-year period, probably around 1250 to 1200 B.C.-ish. Now, that was rough. Now, the time of the judges was, to say the least, a wild time um, marked by anarchy and apostasy which were the norms of the day. And God moved in different ways in that time period to bring his people, uh, people's attention and affection back to him. So here in the beginning of Ruth, we see one of those ways in one of those days that God tries to bring his people's attention back to them. And how does he do it? Let me move back to one verse. He reaches out to them to get their attention was famine. Okay? So they obviously have been disobedient, and I'm saying obviously because and we're going to see the biblical part of that in a second. And they're wondering, and maybe they're worshiping foreign gods, so God tries to get their attention, so he brings famine to the land. Now it would be tempting in our minds and hearts, I think, to attribute famine not to God, but to the devil, right? It would make sense to say that's a devil thing. Famine's a devil thing. Famine's not a God thing, right? And the answer to that is wrong. Okay? All through Ruth, and then after, and then Jonah, and we get into Jonah after Ruth, watch what God does. Watch what God is attributed to, attributed, what is attributed to God as doing. That's what I'm trying to say. And the Bible is clear that famine is very often... Say exclusively, but famine is very often God shaking his people's cage. Let me give you an example from Deuteronomy 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, Moses says to the Israelites before they move into the promised land, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord 
will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are in to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land power. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Now listen. We sit here in our post-enlightenment, New Testament, age of grace mentality. And we don't attribute anything that's hard or bad to God. And we say that they didn't have a full picture of God's redemptive process. And they didn't here in Deuteronomy. But I'll tell you what, I think they had a better view of God than we do. A better understanding of who God is and what God does than we do. On this side of the cross, all is grace. Praise God. But on this side of the cross, God has not stopped working and Doing things to draw his people to himself. And here in the book of Ruth, God has sent a famine among his people and he's doing it to draw them to himself. And again, later on, this is just another verse to proof text this. In Amos, God says, I gave you cleanness of teeth. Means they didn't have anything to eat, famine. In all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So God gave them famine to say, come back to me. Now we look through the book of Judges. Sometimes they came back to him, sometimes they didn't. But God had set before his people blessings and curses back in Deuteronomy and urged them to choose obedience to his law and thus the blessings that came with that obedience. But if they chose disobedience and thus the curses, God would curse them. Listen, God would curse them, including withholding rain, leading to drought and famine. I gave you cleanness of teeth and lack of bread, yet you did not return to me. So, here in the time of the judges, when disobedience and idolatry abounded, so did the obvious curses that came from God himself. And during this famine, we meet a man named Elimelech. Who lives in Bethlehem, in the southern area of the Promised Land, of Now, the name Elimelech, and listen, every name matters in the book of Ruth. Matters what it means. The name Elimelech means the Lord or my Lord is king. And the name Bethlehem means house of bread. So, this man, whose name proclaims God is his king, living in the house of bread, comes face to face with the famine. And so what does he do? Looks to his king to provide? No. He flees. He flees the land of God and the people of God to go to a foreign land. He leaves the house of bread and the land of his king and goes to a foreign land where foreign gods are worshipped, hoping to find provision from, well, who knows where. It doesn't sound like he cared where the provision came from. He just wanted provision. Now listen, I get it. Your family's hungry and they're looking at you, hey, where's the food? I don't know if God's cut off the food, but let's go somewhere where God isn't. 
let's go somewhere where provision is. What's more, more important, the provision or the God who sends the provision or withholds the provision? And Elimelech votes with his feet. And he says, what's more important is the provision. We've got to find the provision. Sorry, God. Oh, we don't see that he's sorry. So he flees. And he takes his wife, Naomi. The word the name Naomi means pleasant. And his two sons, now these guys, Malon and Kilion, and their names mean sickly and pining. They were loved, right? <laughs> Dang. <laughs> sickly, get in here. Where's your brother pining? I don't know, he's somewhere. I don't feel good. <laughs> What do you want, Mom? <laughs> so, this Israelite family goes to Moab seeking sanctuary provision in a time of God disciplining his people. Oh, and we are so prone to run from the discipline of God. So, this is not a good start to our story. Verses 3 through 5. But, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. Mark that, that's important. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now talk about the wheels falling off of something. So the Lord is my king takes his family to Moab where they worship Chemosh and sacrifice their children to Chemosh. He takes his family there to try to provide for his family. He's trying to save his family's lives. And he takes them to a place where the lives of children are not venerated. As a matter of fact, they're sacrificed. And while they're there, uh-oh, the Lord is my king, Elimelech, dies, leaving Naomi and their sons to fend for themselves. Now, die because he was disobedient? It, the text doesn't say that. We don't know. I think it's a possibility. I'll just leave that there. Should have been a wake-up call. Hey, let's get back home. Let's get back to God's people. It's not. The boys take wives. Moabite wives. Ain't supposed to do that. You're not supposed to intermarry with the peoples of the nations because their gods will pollute you, God said. We talked about that last week. So... One disobedience has led to another disobedience, which is so often the case. They don't repent, they continue in their sin. So these guys take Moabite wives, their names are Orpah and Ruth. Now their names mean gazelle and friendship. Orpah must have been fast. Maybe I don't know. She never lost a sacrifice. <laughs> gazelle and friendship. Now that's interesting. I never know what's coming out of my mouth. <laughs> I won't say that's inspiring. Um, anyway, well, this is sin, yes. And logically, I think we can look and say, well, at least Naomi's going to be taken care of because her boys have wives and they'll start families and they'll take care of the mama, right? Maybe not. It says, after a period of 10 years... We call that a decade. Guess what happens? Sickly and pining die as well. I'm not making fun of 
fun of them or light of their deaths. I'm just pointing out <clears throat> their names are significant. But don't miss that info. Naomi is now in a foreign country where she's pretty much planted after 10 years at least, having been there a full decade, and both her sons die as well. She has now lost her husband and her only two sons. And after 10 years, she's with two other young widows who happened to be married to her sons before they died. Listen, this is an awful situation. Awful. This is rock bottom. You want to know what rock bottom looks like? This is it. Three widows, and widows in those days had no hope. I mean, it's forage and scrape up something if you can. There's no way to provide for it, especially in Moab, where we don't care about some Israelite woman. Let her die. We don't care. Three widows, no hope, discarded by society with a dead end bloodline which was both a personal and a public tragedy. And back in the country of Israel, they would have said, hey, we need to redeem this bloodline. We need to do something about this. We can't let this guy's family just pass off the face of the earth. But here in Moab, I don't care. Here's your bloodline. No one to carry on the name of his family. No redeemer to save the family name and the bloodline of Elimelech, the Bethlehem. So then what? Verses 6 to 14. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now it's ten years later, y'all. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way, on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughter, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So what do you do when you hit rock bottom? either lay there and die or you start making a move upward. And we see a move upward made here in the word return. The Hebrew word is shub. So y'all can just say shub the rest of the day. Shub. S-H-O-O-B is how we would transliterate the Hebrew word. And this word is going to be seen nine times in the next 11 verses. Makes it pretty important, by the way. And it's used as the word return, or gone back, or turn back. And the reason Naomi is thinking about returning to her Judean home is because word has reached her here in Moab, out in the fields of Moab, that there's bread in the house of bread again. God has provided food for his people, is what the text says. So she takes her daughters-in-law 
and says, hey, let's go back to my old home place because there's food. God has provided food for them again. And something in her goes, we would be taken care of. Why? Because there's provisions in the law of God for widows, for poor people, and for redeeming a bloodline. Which is good. Bring it to remembrance who God is, what God has said, and what God will do if the people of God will be obedient. So she takes her daughters along and says, hey, let's go. We'll go back to my place. Back where I'm from. She's returning not only to the land of her past, but to her God and His provision. And that's important. And as she sets out, she's got both of her daughters-in-law with her, but she tells them to return, chew, to turn back, chew, from following her and to go back to their people. Go back into Moab, where they had headed out from on this trip to Bethlehem. And at first the girls were saying, no, we're going to return with you, we're going to chew with you. Indicating that same mindset that Naomi has of not only going to Bethlehem, but also to the people of God, the Jews. But Naomi explains that there's nothing for them there. That's a terrible perspective. These young ladies, widows in an early stage of their lives, Naomi says, have no reason to stick with their mother-in-law. In a very Jewish mindset, Naomi explains that she had no sons left to give them as husbands. We talked about it last week with leveret marriage. She says, I got no sons left to give you as husbands. And even she would get married, even if she would herself get married that very day, these two young ladies are not going to wait until she has sons who would have to grow up and then be young boys who would have to marry much older women. Naomi says, this, this is a crazy line of thought. Don't even go there. So she says, golly, this is awful. I have nothing to give you back in the land of my God. I have nothing to give you back with the God of my land. Lost perspective. She says, All I've got to give you is the burden of caring for me as a lonely widow, on in years and destitute myself. So, she says, Go back, shoot, go back to the house of your mother. As a contrast to her as their mother in law, and hopefully, she says, they'll find husbands and life will go on well for them. And then they all stand there and Alistair Bex is typical of women. And the next week he came back and he said, I got in trouble for saying that. I got other emails. Three women standing here on the road crying. It's a sad scene. Three widows hugging and crying and apparently saying goodbye to each other on the road from Moab to Bethlehem. But this section ends with this statement. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and you can basically insert the word goodbye there. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but, all that word. But, Ruth clung to her. So Orpah, the gazelle, flees at the shooing or shooting of her mother-in-law. Run along, little dear. And she does. Somewhere on the road between Moab and Bethlehem, Ruth makes a decision. Ruth, friendship, clings to her mother-in-law. The gazelle runs away, but the friend clings 
watch this. This is the turning point of this whole story. Verses 15 to 18. And she, Naomi, said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return. Go back after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And praise God, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more man. <laughs> Naomi looks at Ruth clinging to her. Now get that picture. Clinging. And she says, Get, gone. Because the Elden fled, you're going back home. She's done fled and she, where she's fled to. Really, that's the wrong question. Naomi says that Orpah had gone back not to a place, but to her people and to her gods. So, Naomi says, return, shoo, after your sister-in-law. And then verse 16 starts with that wonderful word, but Ruth said, and that sets the stage for a nope, not going to do it statement. And that's exactly what we get. It's a humdinger. Verses 16 and 17 are just... Let's soak this up again. Let's look at this again. 16 and 17. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, this is a familiar statement. There's a slide, pre-service that's up there, um, well-known even outside the Christian circles. It's used in weddings a lot, these two verses are. Not wrongly, I don't think, but it's not the context, right? The context here is on the road from Moab to Bethlehem, from Ruth to Naomi, from one widow to another. Naomi is urging Ruth to leave her and go back to her people and her gods. But Ruth says, no. Actually, it's more like, oh, heck no. Heck no, I won't go. She says, don't urge me to shoot. Don't urge me to return from following you because I'm going to follow you wherever you go from now until I die. That means that I'm going to lodge where you lodge. Your people shall be my people. And get this, your God shall be my God. And even marriages give the caveat the covenant is until death do us part, but Ruth says even if Naomi dies, she will stay where Naomi was until Ruth dies. She will not leave even if Naomi dies, which means she is assimilating herself into the very bloodline of Naomi. She's leaving Moab. She's leaving the place, the people, the worship of Moab, and she's becoming a Bethlehemite. And she's embracing the people, the place, and the God of the Bethlehemites. And she even 
takes an oath to Naomi's God, who is now her God, that if anything but death parts her from Naomi, then the Lord can do more to her than even just kill her. And now note this, Ruth uses the word Lord. In your Bible, it's all capital letters, L-O-R-D, which that is the name that the Israelites used that was given to Moses at the burning bush, and it's Yahweh. Israel's God, the great I Am. No other culture worshiped this one true God, this Yahweh, only Naomi's people. Ruth had a better theology than Naomi had. Because, she said, Yahweh will be my Yahweh. I'm not going back to my gods or my people's gods. I'm embracing your God who has now become my God. She swore so. And Ruth, friendship, shows, her, shows herself to be woven into the very fabric of Naomi's life irreversibly. Turn back? I can't do that, Naomi. Actually, I already did. I turned back from Moab. I left Moab. I'm returning from Moab. And I can't turn back and go there after I've turned my back toward, uh, away from my people, my back to my people, and my front toward your people, toward your life and your God, Naomi. I can't go back. I'm going back. Against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. 
first, Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, don't call me Pleasant. Rather, she says, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Don't call me Pleasant, call me Bitter. Wow. Call me Bitter. I'm Bitter. Nothing pleasant here, only bitterness. Why? Because of God. Naomi says, I'm bitter because of God. That's what it boils down to. She says four things about God that happened that made her bitter. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. That's one. Two, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Three, the Lord has testified against me. And four, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now this is going to take some serious investigation here. Is she right or is she wrong? And the answer is yes. Naomi, who left for Moab at the urging, I would guess, of her husband. We don't know that either. Maybe it was her idea. We don't know. But we know that 10 plus years ago, when the famine came, her and her family leave. And she says she's bitter because God has let her have it. God has been bitter against her and made her bitter. And she uses the word Shaddai. We would say El Shaddai, God Almighty. So she says the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with her. She says she went away full and the Lord, Yahweh, the great I Am, brought her back empty. God emptied her. She says Yahweh has testified against her. He has put her on trial and he has found her guilty. And she says, Shaddai has brought calamity upon her. The Almighty has afflicted her, which is what that means. Now let me ask you this. How do you feel hearing that? Is Naomi or Mara right here? Or is she just upset and blaming God for all the bad that's happened to her? I mean, she, she left, right? She zoomed off to Moab, right? Don't blame God for the consequences of your sin. But wait, she's bitter. That's bad. But she has an amazingly high view of God. And God being in control of all things. That's good. John Piper says, quote, I would take Naomi's theology any day over the sentimental views of God that permeate so many churches today. Endless excuses are made for God's sovereignty. Naomi is unshaken and sure about three things. God exists, God is sovereign, and God has afflicted her. End of quote. Now knowing God is sovereign and not being afraid to attribute calamity to God is right and good. Being bitter is not good. Now I've never lost my spouse to my own two kids. So I can't say that Naomi's feelings are understandable or not. I, I can't associate. I don't know what that feels like. And it's easy for me to sit there and say, well, you shouldn't be better, Naomi. But I don't get it. But you know who else doesn't condemn Naomi here? The text. The text doesn't condemn her. The, the, the writer doesn't say, and Naomi shouldn't have been bitter. There isn't a narrator voice that says, Naomi was wrong. But, 
knowing that God is in charge of all things, should lead us to hope, not to bitterness. She says she's bitter, that God has brought this bitterness upon her, and the text marches on. It seems God just wants us to see her bitterness and her acknowledgement that God has sovereignty, in His sovereignty has overseen all the calamity that came upon her. Can we say that today? God has overseen all the calamity that has overtaken me. We should be able to say that. God has overseen all of the calamity that has overtaken me. Now just as a quick aside, and I was going to do an application one for this, but I ran out of time and space. Oh, for a group of people who live in community, who feel their feelings, express them to one another, and feel safe enough to feel them with each other. Our feelings have a tendency to push us away from community. Oh, for a group of people who let their emotions push them closer to each other. Alistair Begg said that Naomi's honesty is more than matched by her theology. And oh, that that would be true of us individually and corporately. We'll get back to this thought pattern when we get to application. But for right now, last verse. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Sinclair Ferguson says, we go from a minor key to a major key right here at the end of the verse of the chapter. There's our word return again, twice, shub. Naomi returned and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, returned with her. Well, she had never been there. And Naomi was bitter. We saw that in the previous verses. But look here at the end. And they came to Bethlehem when? At the beginning of barley harvest. Is that important? Yeah, every detail of the story is important, literally everyone. And this, the fact that there is a barley harvest will surely be even more important than we can know as we move forward in the next chapter. But for now, it's just like a tiny ray of light. Again, the soundtrack changes just a little bit, like Ferguson said. Breaking out in the midst of all this hard and heavy and sad. Remember we said last week, this book is about redemption. And right now we just got a couple hobbits walking around on the mountainside. But something's changing here. There's a step here toward redemption. The chapter started with a God-sent famine in Bethlehem. And the chapter ends over 10 years later with a God-sent barley harvest. There's bread in the house of bread again. And that is the start of a positive momentum after a decade of famine, death, and bitterness. God's reaping draweth nigh. And while he's never stopped working, he's about to show himself in ways that will overwhelm and overcome even Mrs. Mara and all her losses. But that's next time.
For now, let's look at application from this initial chapter. We've got three P's. Pain, perspective, and plan. Pain, perspective, and plan. First application point is pain. But we're laying what's your prediction for the fight? Not prediction. Pain. Let's rock three. Anybody ever... No, no. Anybody make it to this point in their life without any pain? That's going to be a Right, Piper? Right. Right. None of us have. And she's the youngest of us. That child shall leave them. All of us have experienced pain. Okay, stop. <laughs> kids in the service. I really do. I, I say that wholeheartedly. I love it. It's awesome. We all have, are, and will experience pain in our lives. Nobody gets out of this thing alive. Right? And please, 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 please hear me say this. There is no one simple explanation for pain in our lives. Sometimes that pain is a consequence of our sin. Sometimes it's the discipline of God. Sometimes it's the weapon of Satan. And sometimes it just doesn't fit into any neat category that we can come up with. And for us to say all pain is this is a fallacy. Don't know. How many times have I sat with people in a therapy office and they said, why is this happening? And I had to say, I don't know. I don't know. And even if I did know why, I'm not sure what happened. C.S. Lewis says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. End of quote. Naomi shows back up in Bethlehem and she says, I died back there. I lost my husband and I lost my two sons. And I am in grievous pain. Don't call me pleasant. <coughs>
This hurts too much. I can't stand it anymore. I gotta go. I gotta run from God. I gotta run from the church. I gotta run from people. No! No! Please, no! Feel your pain with us. Let me feel my pain with you. Stay in the household of God. It took 10 years for them to hear that there was food back in Bethlehem. Are you saying they should have just struggled for 10 years? Yes. And been honest about it. And hurt. And let us weep with you. So that we can rejoice with you when you're rejoicing as well. Alistair Beck said, God is at his best when we are at our worst. In our pain, God gets to show himself as able to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. To comfort us with his rod and his staff. So in the midst of your pain, are you looking for God's plan? Are you seeking God's glory and God's purposes? Or are you just saying, take it away from me? You're like, why are you mad at me for hurting? I'm not. I just get this way sometimes. <laughs> Our tendency is this, and I'll quote Sinclair Ferguson one more time. If God is not giving us what we want, and if God is not giving us what we feel like we deserve here, we will go and find those things ourselves in our own way. And that's called sin. And you're running away from your help, not to your help. It's almost cliche, and I'm, I'm, I'm sad that it is. So to keep me from becoming conceited, Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for church when I am weak and I'm in pain and I'm strong. Oh, we don't want to believe that. Surely there's a better way. Now, just real quick, back here. The messenger of Satan was sent to harass him. He pleaded to God that it would be taken away, and God said, No. Who sent this thorn in Paul's flesh? God did. No, Satan did, you say, God did. Satan brought it. God sent it. I need to make him say, Pastor, Hey, listen, that's tough. 
Satan brought up the God sent him. Whatever pain it is that you have felt, are feeling, or will feel, Satan may bring it, but God has sent it. Hopefully, that gives you hope. Because our pain needs a good perspective, which is the second point. How we view our situation, whether it be pain or not, is shaped by our view of God. Our pain or any other circumstance has to be viewed through a biblical God-wrought lens. That famine was sent to call his people to return to him. Not to run from him. Elimelech and his family saw it wrongly. So they ran. Now Ruth does have this high view of God. And she calls him I am and should die. And she says God has done this to me. True. But her perspective was pretty bad. Because she was incredibly bitter. And if you're sitting here today and you're bitter because of your persecutions and pains, turn your eyes to the person of God. Is he good or is he not? But this doesn't feel good. That wasn't my question. This feels bad and he is good. I didn't even put it up here. Romans 8.28, right? And we know that for those who love God and are called according to His purposes, all things work together for our good. Do you know that? That's the right perspective. It doesn't feel good. I'm not saying, praise God, I'm suffering. But I'm saying, I'm bitter, so I'm turning my eyes to God, not away from Him. My perspective is through the lens that God is good. You say, you don't know my situation. I don't have to. All things means all things. And if your perspective is, well then, but, but, but God wouldn't do this to me. God wouldn't send this stuff to me. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather have a God who's in control of the mayhem? Or a God who's shocked or surprised or caught off guard by it? Would you rather have a God who's sovereign or a God who's reacting to what everybody else and everything else is doing? Because if your perspective is that God's up there going, uh-oh, shoot, I didn't mean for Elimelech to die. Oh no, the boy's died too? That's not God. That's no God. That's us. And we've made God in our image. So I look to God and I see that He is good. So then I start to ask myself this question. What is my place, my purpose, my ministry in the midst of this suffering? I'll tell you what it is. Matthew 28, a few weeks ago, right? It's make disciples. Testify to the greatness and goodness of God in the midst of your pain to turn people into disciples. That's what you're supposed to do. When did... 
Ruth decided that Naomi's God would be her God. When everything was good? No. Naomi's God became Ruth's God as Naomi suffered. And I promise you, the world is watching how you suffer. And what they're going to see is your perspective of who God is as you suffer. You have no idea who's watching you suffer and how it will affect them. You're like, thanks for the pressure and all the pain. It's not pressure, it's a relief, it's a release. God, I know you're good and I am bitter. Help me to not be bitter. Help me to suffer well so that you are glorified in the midst of what you are doing here in and through me. One little weird side shot here too about perspective. They get back and Naomi call me bitter. The Lord took me out full and he brought me back empty. How do you feel if you're Ruth standing right there beside her? I'm right here. You're not empty. I'm, I'm with you. And the very plan of God is standing next to her. Sometimes our perspective, we can't see what God is doing right beside us because we're focused on what God should have done back there from our perspective. We can't live in love here because something back there was wrong or bad or hurt us. Call me bitter. What about call me blessed because this woman has clung to me and pledged her life to me. And if I got nothing else, I got Perspective looks like this. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The psalmist knew what was going on. And finally, plan. Listen, God's plan is an eternal plan. That's what Don stood up here and said this morning, right? God's not God's plan is not just for right here, right now. God's plan is not just for this moment of my life where I'm suffering and struggling. This story of redemption and hope is set against the backdrop of the judges period when people are doing what is right in their own eyes. And in the midst of that, we find God doing His will, accomplishing His purposes, even as the people think they're doing what's right. Listen to me. God knew a nobody from Moab and had a marvelous plan for her life. And that Moabite woman coming into this family was sinful. Listen to me. Whoa. Woo! Listen to me. God even redeems our sins. Oh, man. Because that's God's plan. God's plan is to bring grace and to redeem sinners. And what do sinners do? They sin. And God went up there going, well, they just sin too much now. I can't do anything with that mess. God's eternal plan was to take sinners, pour grace upon them, turn them into saints, conform them to the image of His Son so that they might show the glory of His Son to a lost and dying world who know nothing of Him. 
and God's plan marches on from eternity past into eternity future. God's plan was and is to save sinners. God's plan was to save Ruth and to establish her in David's line and thus in Jesus' ancestral line. And in eternity past, God set his sights on a Moabite woman and used the sins of sinful men to accomplish his purpose. And he did it. And you know what, church? He's going to do it. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And we're going to see refuge later on in Ruth. You know if that sounds like a whole lot to me? Going on a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, Jesus said, Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In the midst, in the face of unthinkable, unbearable pain, Jesus' perspective was, I want this to go away, but I want your will more than I want this to go away. I want you to be glorified more than I want to be spared from pain. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. <coughs> and all the angels in heaven stood up and said, yes, and amen. <coughs> we got her. As if it was ever in doubt. May we have the same theology that Ruth had. And may we cling to the person of God in the midst of our pain, with an eternal perspective, seeking the plan of God rather than our comfort. And we leave with a couple of hobbits walking around the mountains today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your perfect plan. Give us eyes to see. Give us the right perspective so that we might walk in our pain in a way that brings you glory. God, we do not see the full picture. Trust you and we cling to you and to your people. Your people are our people, and you, God, are our God. Thank you for that. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand receive the benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will 